You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Joshua chapter 10, verses 6 through 14. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horam, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel when he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you as your people under your word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we believe that you are indeed our intercessor who can bring us confidently as your people into the presence of God. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are the power of God within us to cause us to be more and more like Jesus, to conform him, to be like him, to be people of courage and of faith. So we pray now that you would do these things in and through us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night. If you're new with us, that means that if you are an incoming fourth through sixth grader and want to head out with Jordan and Zachary, not, yeah, just the two of those guys, uh, and talk about the sun standing still in the sky, we'll see you back here in a few minutes. Well, hey there, everyone. My name is Nathan. I am one of the pastors here. It is so good to see you all this evening. Uh, It's cooler tonight inside than it has been the last few weeks, so we could praise God for that. Uh, But we have been walking through this book of Joshua together. Uh, And when I was reading this chapter, I was reminded this week of this classic British sketch where there are two uh, British dudes, and they're dressed up as Nazi officers overlooking the Eastern Front in World War II, and they're looking for the the dreaded Russian communists who might come up over the hill. And one of the guys, these British dudes who are dressed up as Nazis, one of the guys says that, uh, well, he's been been thinking about them themselves lately, and they've been, he's been like looking at their caps that they are wearing. 
And uh, he says to the other guy, he says, have you ever noticed that there's uh, skulls on our caps? And he's like, no, I've never noticed that. Skulls. And then he says, Hans, are we the baddies? Like, are we the actual bad guys? We've got skulls on our caps. And the sketch is making fun of the crazy reality that many, if not most Nazis, thought that they were doing what was right. That slowly, as cultures change and what individuals and societies, their values change, that what would have been absolutely been universally recognized as wrong just a few years ago now seems clearly right. Well, we've been slowly working our way through this book of Joshua, where there is lots of violence, there is lots of war, there is right worship, and there is false worship. And last week, we said that what's at stake here in these chapters of conquest in the land is the Canaanite way of life. Will the Canaanite way of life survive and continue? And how is God using his people to completely upend and then replace the Canaanite way of life with the right worship of himself? But why? Why is it that Joshua, why is God through Joshua so opposed to the Canaanite way of life? Are they really the baddies? Are we sure that Israel isn't the baddies? Are we the baddies? So let's work through this incredibly famous passage tonight and try to answer three questions. What is God against? What is he opposed to? What is he against? And then second, understanding that, what does he do about it? What does he do about the things that he's opposed to? And then thirdly, how do we make sure that he's not against us? So first of all, what is God against? Here's what we've got going on. Last week, we saw the Gibeonites, these people, they, they tricked Joshua and all of Israel into making a peace treaty with them. So now, in these Gibeonite cities, Israel has essentially swept through and cut the land of Canaan in half. Israel has now retreated out of the region of Gibeon, but now the Gibeonite allies, uh, with the Gibeonite allies in the middle of the land, the land is cut in half. The north of Canaan is essentially cut off from the south of Canaan and vice versa. So, five different kings from the south. And kings here might not be the best word. When we hear of a king, we typically think of someone who is like the leader of a huge nation. These kings were the leaders of probably like five individual city-states we might think of, uh, much how like ancient Greece or medieval or Renaissance Italy or Germany would have been ruled. There was large cities, but not necessarily allied together politically, just, just because they lived nearby to each other or they spoke the same language. So you might think of it the way the Athenians hated the Spartans or people from Florence hated Mil people from Milan or something. But if and when those times and here it became convenient for people of these kinds of political setups to fight together, they would. And this is exactly what these five city-state kings do in Joshua 10. They rightly see that their very way of life is at stake. They are threatened by this large new people who have been marching in, led by their God who has destroyed at least two well-known military outposts, and they're worried that individually they might be next. And on top of that, verse 2 tells us in chapter 10 that there's this guy named Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem. And he's even more afraid of this whole thing because of the treaty that has just happened with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are apparently great warriors, and there are more of them, we read here, that than was at the entire outpost of Ai. So now Israel and its new ally, the Gibeonites, are a huge threat to all these southern people. And so Adonizedek goes to these four other city-state kings, and he proposes an alliance. And he's basically saying, like, look, none of us can do this on our own. 
but let's all five of us together go quickly and attack the Gibeonites. Let's do this like blitzkrieg thing right quick, this lightning war before Israel. Let's attack them and destroy them before Israel can come back to their defense. And this is where we are through verse 5 of chapter 10, right up to where Karen began reading in verse 6. But before we move on to the action movie of verse 6, does this scene ring any bells for us in the story of Israel? Of five kings coming out to oppose the people of God. In Genesis 14, Abram, later to be known as Abraham, the father of Israel. Uh, and then Abram's nephew, his nephew Lot, becomes and finds himself in trouble. Lot is caught right in the middle of this huge battle of four kings against five kings. And as things are beginning to cool down, a guy named Melchizedek shows up. And Melchizedek is the king of Salem, what would later to become known as Jerusalem. And Melchizedek is described not only as a king of Jerusalem, but as a high priest or a priest of the Most High God. He comes out in the smoldering aftermath of the battle, and he brings out bread and wine to Abraham and to the people, and he says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is just a short time after God had told Abram that he would bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. And so in Genesis 14, we have a king of Jerusalem named Melchizedek, who on behalf of five kings has come to bless Israel. And in Joshua 10, we have what, as I've heard him described as, like a distorted carnival mirror version of Melchizedek. We have a king of Jerusalem, not named Melchizedek, but Adonizedek who on behalf of five kings has come not to bless Israel and to worship the God of Israel, but to curse Israel and to curse the God of Israel. He has come to fight against the allies of Israel. So unlike the Gibeonites last week who wanted peace with God, but who still wanted to keep their lives exactly the same way before, they wanted peace with God, but they did not want to become the people of God. Adonai Zedek and the four other kings of Israel, they don't even want peace. They are brazen in their opposition against the God of Israel. And that becomes then the answer to our first question. What is God against? He's against opposition of humans who are created by God saying, no, no, I know what's best. I know what I want, so I'll do that. I'll take that. I do not care what you say. I do not care what you want. I do not care if my actions are harmful to me. I do not care if my actions are harmful to others. I do not care if you have created me to act and rule as your delegated manager over the authority that you have given me. I will manage on my own, according to my own opinions. I do not care if you have made me, like everything else in the universe, to bring honor and glory to the glorious praise of your name and grace. I will bring honor and glory to the praise of my very insignificant name. I do not care if you have made me to bless the world and to love my neighbor. I will hate them in my heart and I will harm them with my hands. I will use others for my selfish benefit rather than using myself for the benefit of others. So, because of all that, I'm just going to assume you're not real or aren't powerful enough to demand that you're real and I'll ignore you and I will remain opposed to you on a large scale over the course of my life, or in the smaller minute-by-minute -minute decisions throughout my day, I will just sit here, thank you very much, in opposition, with a mind opposed, with a body opposed, with a soul opposed, with a heart opposed to God. And all of that, everything that I just said, is what the Bible calls sin. 
the rejection, the opposition of God, the elevation of the self. And God is opposed to sin. He is opposed to opposition. And all of that, not because he's some like megalomaniac who demands everyone just worship him because he's not worthy of it, or when he's not worthy of it, he is worthy of it. All of this he can demand because he's so good, because he's so glorious. He will not allow humanity to ruin, diminish, or deface his creation. He loves what he has created. And so like we've talked about the last several weeks, if you oppose God, he will oppose you. If you are against God, he will be against you. If you make war against God, he will make war against you. Not because he is evil, but because he is good. And so second, if this is what God is against, if he is against opposition, if he is opposed to opposition, if he is against sin, what does he do about it? What does he do about that which he's opposed to? Now, two things here about the Gibeonites. They send word to Joshua saying, hey, Joshua, we're in major trouble. Remember what you said, though, right? You're going to come help us out. These five kings have come to destroy us. Please help. So first, Joshua could have thought. He could have gotten this uh, messenger who's maybe run to the Israelite camp and said, please help. And Joshua could have unrolled this note and said, ha, what luck. They tricked us into this unwise treaty, and this is the best news possible. These five kings are going to do our dirty work, and then we can finally be free of the Gibeonites. That lasted like a couple of days. No harm, no foul. But no, Joshua's word, Israel's word, must be their word. The word of the people of God must be a trustworthy, must be a reliable, must be a true word. The people of God represent God to people. And if the people of God are unreliable, if their work is dishonest, if their promises are just kind of a coin flip, then maybe their God is the same way, unreliable, untrustworthy. And so when Joshua swore to the Gibeonites a treaty of peace and of protection, it was not a question of whether Israel would actually honor that promise. They will, and they do. But then second, God has been really silent over the past chapter and a half, hasn't he? Since the whole Gibeonite story and ordeal. Now through almost kind of coming up on halfway through this chapter 10, Israel has done a very foolish thing in making this peace treaty that we saw in chapter 9. So maybe while Israel would have to honor this promise, God wouldn't be pleased by it, or he certainly wouldn't be for it. Maybe they'd have to go out now on their own and they'd have to fight their way to victory based on their own strength, based on their own power, based on their own military ingenuity. But no, verse 7 Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor, and the Lord speaks. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. God comes to Joshua and repeats anew. He renews the exact same promises that he made to Joshua in chapter 1. Do not be afraid. Why? Why? Why do you not need to be afraid, Joshua? Because God has already, past tense, given them into your hand. It's as good as done. All you have to do, Joshua, is just show up. I will win the battle. And so here's what happens. Going south from Gibeon is a 10-mile ascent. You're climbing uphill going south, which is described as Beth Horon here the ascent of Beth Haran. Israel has marched all night, and they surprise this larger army at the top of this mountain. 
in the middle of the night when exactly they wouldn't be expecting the Israelites to show up. But on the southern side of the slope, once you ascend coming from the north, then as you continue to go south, the slope falls really quickly, 700 feet in two miles. And so the Canaanites, now surprised and uh, they are getting routed at the top of this mountain at the, in the middle of the night, the Canaanites begin running downhill southward, trying to reach their fortified cities to at least get a night to regroup. And as the Israelites are chasing them downhill, God miraculously intervenes in two ways. The first is with a hailstorm. Now we know hailstorms in New Mexico. Maybe once a decade or so, we get a legit one. And then everyone gets free roofs. You get a new roof, and you get a new roof, and you get a new roof once every 10 years when the hailstorms come. Seriously, it was like 2014 or 15. Uh, did you guys get new roofs? Uh, we had roofing guys ringing our doorbell like every day, multiple times a day for like a month after that hailstorm. Insurance did pay for a new roof, and the crew who did our roof that day said that that 10-minute hailstorm would likely provide enough business for them for the next two to three years. It's crazy. And I think those were like grape-sized, maybe golf-sized hail balls. Hail balls? Hailstones, thank you. <laughs> but, so we can get some of those size hailstones, but the further east you push towards like Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, those golf balls can turn into baseballs, softballs, grapefruits. I may have fallen into the hailstorm YouTube rabbit hole uh, this week. It's terrifying. Terrifying. That's not a rabbit hole that is fun. Terrifying videos of car windows and windshields like getting blown out. Big windows, picture windows on people's houses exploding. Terrifying videos. Trees completely shredded. And if one of those hailstones a baseball, a softball-sized hailstone, cleanly catches a head, back of the head, that's all she wrote. And that is evidently what is happening to these fleeing Canaanites, even in a region known for their fantastic hailstorms, this region. This one was apparently even that much more exceptional because verse 11 says, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God is winning the battle for his people here. And let me just read how one commentator then describes what happens next, because I think he puts it really well. He says, picture the scene that must have greeted Joshua as he crested the ridge at Betharon. He's coming from the north, he's coming up 10 miles, and he gets to the top and he begins to overlook what's below him. Before him, as far as his eyes could see, were masses of the panicked armies being pursued by his own soldiers. Over the slopes and above the plains beyond, there was a great cloud from which hail was falling. To his right, the sun was beginning its long afternoon descent toward the Mediterranean Sea. Joshua must have realized two things. First, this was an unprecedented opportunity to, to destroy the Southern Confederacy. The best of their soldiers had come out against him, and they were fleeing. If he could destroy them now, the Southlands would be open to his advancing armies. At the same time, he must have recognized that the day was escaping. When the sun set, fighting would cease, and there was not enough time before sunset to achieve total victory. So Joshua did an unprecedented thing. He asked God to prolong the day. And the text tells us that the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. 
The author confirms that this is exactly what happened by asking, is this not what is written in the book of Jashar? This book of Jashar, we have no idea what this is. This is some extra canonical book. It's some ancient history book outside of the Bible that would have apparently been well known at this time. So Joshua or whoever is writing the book of Joshua is saying, look, everyone knows and remembers this day. It was such a big deal. I'm not the only one writing about this. There were also many other historians and chroniclers who made note of this crazy day. I've heard one person joke that he's sure that even though we don't have any idea what the book of Jashar is, he's sure that we'll have it on our bedside reading tables in heaven, maybe so. But even the book of Jashar says that the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And then Joshua says, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. All right, so for the sun to literally stop in the sky, this means that the earth has to stop spinning, right? And if you have ever slammed on the brakes in your car and you know the kind of force that is involved there, it is probably true that the earth did not stop rotating. The book of Jashar likely would not be commentating on the sun standing still in the sky, but rather the day of complete cataclysm. As that day when every building on earth like crashed over as the earth slammed on its brakes. Not to mention whatever other gravitational anomalies that just get thrown completely out of whack if the earth stops rotating. Now, I'm not saying that God could not do this. He certainly could have somehow, some way, caused the earth to stop spinning and upheld every building on the planet by the word of his power. Easy, no problem. But it seems likely that just as Israel understood the, the sun to be moving across the sky, even though we moderns know it's not the sun moving, it is the earth rotating, they are describing things as the way that they understand them, not necessarily a precise modern science book asking all the same questions that we bring to the text. So a couple of options here. One option is that this is poetic language describing the complete and utter cosmic opposition against the Canaanites. Throughout the Old Testament, we read things like stars fighting against God's enemies. Stars! So often the mountains and the hills break forth in singing. The rivers and the trees clap their hands. Even more clearly, in Habakkuk 3, we read, The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Here, in Habakkuk 3, it's like the sun and the moon are standing still. They are standing back, getting out of the way of God's judgment on the nations. All of these kind of retellings clearly are not a science book of trees clapping hands, but they are poetic expressions of the totality of creation obeying and cooperating with God. And yet, the book of Jashar is noting that something happened that day. So another option is, which I think I'm most prone to believe, is that there was some sort of really crazy atmospheric reflection, refraction thing going on that as the sun passed below the horizon, the light still came and was illuminating the day. The length of the day was, was prolonged. It should have been dark, but it was still light. I don't know what happened. If you ask me what happened if I had a camera on the day of this uh, descent in this valley, I don't know. 
I don't have strong conviction on this. And I know I remember the email forward that we all got in the late 90s. Did you get the email forward that supposedly some professor at the Harvard Observatory did the astronomical math and found a missing like eight or 10 hours in the history of the revolutions and rotations of the earth? But that was an email forward and not an academic journal. I'm sorry. Um, but the reason that I don't have strong convictions on this and I don't really get bothered about what might have happened had we had the video camera trained on the, the battle that day, is in verse 14, what is the emphasis of this text? The emphasis of the text is not actually the sun standing still. In verse 14, the thing that had happened, not before or since, not that is the, the time of the writing of Joshua, the thing that has not happened before or since is not the sun standing still but that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. The Lord fought for Israel. The remarkable thing here, what stuns the narrator, is the response of God to the prayer of a man, not that the sun stood still. This isn't the first time that God has responded to the prayers of his people. The first five books of the Bible present a God who is eager to respond to his people. In fact, most times that God ever acts in the narrative of the Old Testament is in response to his people. So this isn't the very first thing. Nothing has happened before or since. That's not quite the thing that the narrator here is making note of. The narrator is marveling at the sheer cosmic scale of God's response. Nothing has ever happened like this before. Joshua asked the God of the universe, and the God of the universe, the God of flying fireballs through space— the God of atmospheres and stars and light and darkness and hailstones heard the voice of one man, one man. His voice was not lost through the clashing metal of sword and shields. His voice was not lost through time or space or distance or sin, but made it all the way to the throne room of heaven. And heaven responded to prolonged light so that a vast army could be destroyed. What God has done here is immense, and it is immense in response to the prayer of a person. Incredible. And so God, in response to the public prayer of Joshua, miraculously, in the verse 14, fought for Israel. He did exactly what he said he was going to do to Joshua at the beginning of the chapter, and at the beginning of chapter 1. He delivered Israel's enemies into their hand. It was as good as done. All they had to do was show up, and they did, and God did it. So what is God against? God is against opposition. He is opposed to those who oppose him. What does he do about it? He completely and utterly destroys opposition by his cosmic power. It was true then, and it continues to be true today. There are coming Old Testament promises as we continue to read the Old Testament. And then there are certainly future New Testament promises of a day in which the Lord will come and he will utterly destroy his enemies. He will judge the nations. It is appointed, Hebrews 9 says, for man to live once and to die once. And after that comes judgment. John looks forward to a day in Revelation 20 where two books will be opened. There is a book of death and there is a book of life. And death will be swallowed up forever, all crying, all loss and sadness. All those things and all those who belong to the Lord will enjoy him 
without the presence of sin and without the presence of loss forever, finally freed from sin, finally freed from their self-destructive opposition. But Revelation 20 says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, of judgment. Which raises the question for us all. If God is against those who are against him, lastly now, thirdly, how do we make sure that he's not against us? Are we the baddies? Back to Joshua 10. Let me summarize what happens here, starting in verse 16. The defeated five kings, they run away from the battle, and they hide out in a cave. And somehow Joshua finds out where they're hiding. And instead of going in and dragging them out, Israel rolls stones over the mouth of the cave, and he sets men there to guard the cave. And then, while the five kings are trapped in this cave, Joshua and the army, they go and they finish off whatever was left of the five armies, and they take these five empty cities that the kings once ruled. All of the promises of God made to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy are coming true. Like when God said, hey, when you come into the land and when you begin to live in these awesome big cities that you did not build, and when you begin to harvest from fields and vineyards that you did not cultivate, remember that it is the Lord that gave you those things. You had nothing to do with it. Not because of how great you are, but because of his grace and his kindness. That is why Israel is experiencing these things and experiencing these victories. And so what happens at the end of verse 21? The narrator says, not a man, not a man of Canaan moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. No one was speaking poor or opposed words. They were no longer openly and brazenly opposed to the people of Israel. And more importantly, the people of Canaan were no longer, at least with their mouths, opposed to the God of Israel. And so Joshua comes back to the cave In verse 22, Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And let me read in verse 24 and following, and warning here, this is pretty grisly. It should likely give you the same uneasiness that we've talked about regularly through the book of Joshua. But let me read this here, verse 24. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks and Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees and they hung on trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this very day. What in the world? Is this really how God is? Just like licking his chops, waiting for the battle to be over for some good old-fashioned judgment and gore and capital punishment. No. We've thought about many times over the past couple of years that while it is true that our God is a consuming fire, that he does not just do holy and righteous things, he is holy and righteous. But God's judgment and wrath, while they are good, they put right the injustice of an opposed world of unrighteousness, 
God is not wrathful. His judgment and his wrath are not part of his eternal character, are not part of his eternal nature. God is not wrathful. Think about it. God is not wrathful in eternity past. It is not part of who he is. Why? Because sin did not exist in eternity past. God's judgment and wrath are only responsive reactions against a sinful humanity, which is why God can over and over again say things like in Ezekiel 18.32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn, live. I do not enjoy this. It is not part of my character to destroy, to judge. The character and nature of God is not some out-of-control and bloodthirsty God who will not be satisfied and appeased out of his anger until there is blood. He is not out of control. Now, sin deserves death. It is absolutely true that the wages of sin, the earnings of our sin, is death. Eternal sin against an eternal God merits eternal death. And it is true that God does react and respond against sin with anger, with justice, and even with wrath. But he does so not out of control. Not, out of, not like the reactive and emotional Roman gods who would just see something, process it emotionally, and fly off the handle. The God of the Bible is a just God. He is a consuming fire against sin, but he is measured, he is controlled, he is precise, he is perfect, and he is always just. And so the five kings are brought out, and the leaders of Israel are to put their feet on their necks. This takes us all the way back to the original curse of the serpent. In Genesis 3, when the serpent's face and mouth is in the dust, God promises justice against those who would commit themselves to the ruin of God's world. They would have a a foot on the back of their head. But it also looks toward or forward to Psalms where God tramples his enemies underfoot. Future Psalms like Psalm 110, where the messianic king makes his enemies his footstool. And Joshua puts them to death here in Joshua 10 by the sword. And then just like the king or just like he did with the king of Ai in chapter 8, the dead bodies of the king, of all five of these kings, are hung up on trees. Presumably, for the entire day, or for the entire day, presumably as a symbol, signifying to the people who would walk by and see this dead body of a king on a tree, thus will happen to those who oppose the God of heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 21, the book just before Joshua, prescribes this exact kind of thing. And that hanging bodies on a tree symbolize a curse from God. Bodies were not cursed by God because bodies were hanging on a tree. Bodies that were hanging on a tree were cursed by God. Does that make sense? You put cursed bodies from God on trees. This is what you did with them publicly, symbolically, But then, in obedience to Deuteronomy 21, 23, just like with the king of Ai, Joshua commands that the bodies be taken down before sundown. And these bodies are put back into the cave where they were previously hiding so that in a twist of irony, the mouth where they were seeking escape from death had now swallowed them up forever. They were never to come out again. But the question that I ask for us is, how can I be sure that I'm Joshua? How can I be sure that I'm not one of these five kings under God's curse? 
under his just judgment for my opposition against him. You can't. You can't be sure. Well, it's true that this book is maybe the most optimistic book in the Old Testament, highlighting Israel's courage and Israel's obedience. Israel's courage and obedience is so short-lived. In the last chapter, chapter 24, Joshua tells the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. And then turn the page onto the next page of the Bible after chapter 24 on Judges 1, and the history of Israel is a quickly deteriorating story of violence, of injustice, of sin, and of the wholesale rejection of God. All humans, by their nature, are opposed to God, and there is nothing that we can do about it. But here's where Joshua 10 is pointing forward. Joshua 10 is not just pointing to a future and coming warrior king who will put his feet on the necks of injustice and of sin. It is that. Joshua 10 is pointing forward to that. Paul writes among other very similar places in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Jesus will one day put all of his enemies under his feet. And if Joshua 10 makes us uncomfortable, then 1 Corinthians 15 and so much of the New Testament ought to make us uncomfortable as well. But more likely, and we'll talk more about this next week, we just do not have the categories for these types of things in our neat and tidy and peaceful suburban existences. Ukrainian Christians, Nigerian Christians, millions of Christians throughout history don't struggle with passages like these, like we do, of the judgment, the good and right judgment of God against the wicked. But more on that next week. So it's not just that Joshua 10 is pointing forward and toward a future coming warrior king, but it is also that Jesus becomes, at the same time, the warrior king. He comes to willingly give himself up, not just as the king of righteousness and of blessing, but that he would step into the role of the kings of sin and curse as well. Undoubtedly, with Joshua 10 in mind, of these five kings hanging on trees. Paul would later write in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus is lifted up in our place. Those who rightly should receive the curse of God, Jesus freely offers himself as one who was fully and never opposed to God, who walked in the the righteousness, the obedience, the love of God that you and I could never walk in. He is lifted up in your place to receive the wrath of God so that you who were opposed to God and who were deserving of death might receive his life. And after being taken down from the tree before sundown, after an afternoon where the sun did not stay bright in the sky, but a day where the sun went completely dark, 
Jesus is put in a tomb where a large stone is rolled over the mouth intended to show by his enemies how he and how his kingdom had been swallowed up forever. But death could not hold him. And the grave could never contain him. On that Easter Sunday, Christ Jesus and his new kingdom of life and righteousness came pouring out of the grave to all that would come to him for his grace, to be identified with him, who would give him their lives in allegiance to him, to have their lives of opposition to God now recreated into a life of love for God, into the life of Jesus. He is both the lion of justice in this story and he is the lamb of sacrifice. He is both the king of righteousness and he is the servant who would come to suffer. And we, his people, step into that reality as well as his body. We are both what Paul describes as more than conquerors over sin and injustice. We are mighty warriors in the kingdom of God. And yet at the very same time, we are jars of clay, brittle, fragile, breakable, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are to be filled with a spirit of strength and courage and conviction, but at the same time, simultaneously, with a tone, with an aura of gentleness and of kind persuasion, not being quarrelsome, not being domineering, not demanding, but inviting, persuading of the love and kindness of God. Now, all of this, all of this isn't just like the where's Waldo of Jesus in the Old Testament. Oh, he was also on a tree where the sun is doing interesting things and then put in a tomb or put in a, a cave with a, a stone rolled over it. What this is, is to say that the entire history of Israel is moving uphill, is moving to a culminating moment of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that everything on this side of the cross is now in light of his death and resurrection. This story is his story. And if all of history is his story, then you can be sure that your story is wrapped up in his as well. You're not left to define and write and rewrite your own story, making it up as you go along. It is more daily incumbent upon us as Christians to put ourselves under him as his subjects. We are becoming less and less the main character in the story of our hearts and more and more just minor, insignificant, forgettable supporting characters in the true protagonist of the story. The kingdom of Jesus demands that you come to agree with him about your opposition, to come to agree with him about your need for his life and forgiveness. But if this is the case, if that's the case, then your life, your losses, your difficulties, your pain, your sin, your ongoing battle with the sin in your own heart, all of it is as good as done. He will win the battle. He will fight for his people. And all we have to do is show up. I'm just saying, I believe you. I trust you. I'm here. You have my life. Now fight for me. And he will. Keep showing up. And as Kyle encouraged us earlier, to expect great things. To expect and ask God for great things in your own heart. That this might be the day of righteousness, of obedience, of contentment, of trust. Expect great things in the life of our church that many through us might come to believe in the work of Jesus. 
that new life would come in conversion. Expect and ask God for great things in the world for the sake of his glorious name. And like Joshua, who as the intercessor for God's people here, miraculously asks or asks God publicly and then God miraculously responds to, God will respond through his intercessor, Jesus, as like a, a prism. We get the intercessory power of Jesus now spread out into a million ways of blessing to his people. We, being united to him, can just as confidently as Joshua asked of God publicly on a battlefield in this day, ask of God great things and he will hear. Might we be a praying people? Might we be an asking people? Might we be a people of faith that believes that God hears, believes that God will respond, believes that he will fight and win the battle. So let us take our requests to the Lord to ask boldly for the Lord's work in our life this week. Let's do that now. Our Father, we are thankful that you are God who hears. You are transcendent. You are wholly unlike us, and yet you are near. You hear the concerns, the anxieties, the requests, the prayers of your people. We want to believe this. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to believe that you hear and respond. Help us to be a praying people that throughout our days, minute by minute, we might be a people who respond more to the circumstances of our life, not trying to come up with the best and most creative and most ingenious response possible that, that we might be filled with an inner monologue of your word. We might be filled with an inner monologue of your spirit, of walking by the spirit, of nearness with you, of trust in you. We want you to do great things, not for our sake, but to you, O oh Lord, be the glory. And so we pray all of these things with great confidence and with faith in agreement with you about our former opposition, but now trusting you as a good father who have adopted your former enemies as your sons and daughters. And we come to you in confidence and in love. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.